0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California, morning devotion by the Reverend Chuck Tedrick, Dean of Students at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this chapel message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. Wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to chapel. We're going to continue our series on prayer. But I think most of you are aware that uh, Dr. Glomsrud's mother uh, passed away this past Saturday. So as we open up uh, in prayer, I'd like to pray for the Glomsrud family as well. Let's go before our God and King. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to come before you as our children. We thank you that you are a speaking God and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand who you are, who you are for us, who you are in us, who you are with us through your son and through your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would love you more dearly, that we would hear you more clearly and that we would follow you more nearly every day as you conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And Father, we want to pray in particular that you would be with the Glomsrud family. We pray that you would be with uh, Dr. Glomsrud and Elizabeth and with Soren and Ingrid and Gunnar. We thank you that they were able to go and to uh, be with Grandma before you called her home to be with you. We thank you that she is a daughter of yours and that you loved her before time and sent your own son in time and space to redeem her and to save her and deliver her, her from sin and from satan and from death and we thank you that she is now with you in a way that we long to be but we pray that you would continue to be with the glom's i pray that you would allow them to grieve that you would allow them to suffer i mean to to, to sorrow i pray that they would indeed grieve but not grieve like those who have no hope We recognize that death indeed is an enemy, but it is also a defeated enemy in Christ. And it is his name and robed in his righteousness that we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen. And please turn, if you will, in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I want to read a couple verses that we read last week, um, but in particular, I just want to look at the Lord's prayer, if you will, in verse 42. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31, but we'll, in particular, just focus on verse 42 and the Lord's one-sentence prayer there. This is the word of God. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So far the reading of God's holy word. Here again, our passage comes to us right on the heels of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then he participated in the last of the Old Covenant sacri- uh, ceremonies with them of the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper. And then we re- looked at last week that there was an argument about which one of them was the greatest. And then Jesus predicted both Peter's falling away but also assured him That he would not ultimately fall away. He would not ultimately go the way of Judas and that his faith would be restored. And the reason why his faith would be restored is because Jesus himself would be interceding for him. Jesus was on the way to the cross right then to pay for him. And he would intercede for him. And then now Jesus is going on to pray. And he brings his disciples with him and encourages them and exhorts them to pray that they might not enter temptation. And it's interesting that in this passage, Jesus is the only one that prays and Jesus is the only one who doesn't fall into temptation. There's certainly something in there for us to be dealt with in another sermon, but I want to look in particular at this prayer of our Lord's this morning in three ways. First, Jesus's relationship. Second, Jesus's request. And third, Jesus's resolve. Jesus's relationship, Jesus's request, and Jesus's resolve. First, Jesus' relationship. To whom does Jesus pray? Don't let that slip by you too fast. He starts his prayer by saying, Father. We're so used to that in our circles. We're so used to that as Christians that it may just fly by. It may go unnoticed, but think about who is praying and to whom he is praying. It's Jesus praying to his Father. There's been an eternal relationship there, an unbroken relationship, a harmonious relationship, a glorious relationship, a loving relationship, a beautiful relationship, a union and communion that has existed from all of eternity, before eternity, beyond time. We can't even imagine it. We can't get our minds around what that is like to live in union and communion forever never a starting point when there wasn't a relationship between the father and the son that was beautiful and harmonious and glorious and all but one of jesus's prayers in the gospels are addressed to the father and the only one is the one that he is on his way to pray this one is somewhat of a predecessor to that one when he goes to the cross when the only prayer that we have uttered by jesus that wasn't starting with my father in one way or another is my god my god why have you forsaken me And here he starts his prayer with that relationship, Father, the one who he's known and loved and enjoyed sweet communion forever. This is going to be significant aspect of the horror of the cross, the brokenness, the abandonment, the separation, the turned face that's about to happen that he's never experienced or never known in his whole life and is undeserved because there's nothing that he did on his own to deserve that. It will be as he bears our curse and our wrath and our separation and our judgment. And the context for this even plays out a little bit in that Jesus had just said that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And here Jesus is pulling from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.12 is the exact verse but really, it brings a lot with it. If you remember the cartoons, Bugs Bunny, whenever Bugs Bunny went to get a carrot and he pulled a carrot, like the whole earth would come up with it or the crust of the earth. And it's like that a lot with prophecy. It's not that just, just that Jesus was saying, Isaiah 53, 12 is about me. But when he pulls up that, all of it. <laughs> Everything that it's being talked about in that servant song is in one way pointing forward to our Lord and Savior Jesus. He's actually the fulfillment of all prophecy. And here, if we looked at Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, more specifically, we'd find that it's the fourth of the servant songs. It's the suffering song. Jesus is conscientiously aware of this. He knows where he's going. He knows that he's praying to the Father from whom he's about to be separated He's so thinking about the words that he's going to be despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten, afflicted by God, pierced by our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, cut off from the land of the living. In Isaiah fifty-three ten. It says, "Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief." When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion of the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is thinking about, he's praying about when he says Father in this prayer that he is saying, he's thinking about what's to come. He's the suffering servant. He is the faithful son. He's the one who's going to endure these things. He is the one who has never had a moment of separation, never a moment of displeasure with the Father is about to bear the weight of everything for the sins of his people. And so Jesus makes a request, our second point. In light of all of that, in light of knowing everything that's coming, he's now just hours away from the crucifixion. He says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. To remove this cup really means the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment, the cup of condemnation that was prophesied, the covenant curse for all those who disobey the Lord in any way. All of us who are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, all of us who disobey the Lord, not only by nature, but in our our actions. Often judgment and wrath and condemnation are brought up in the idea of a cup. And here's the cup of wrath that Jesus says, if you are willing, remove this cup, remove this judgment, remove this wrath, remove this condemnation, remove this separation and this abandonment that is on the horizon. In other words, Jesus is really saying here, if there is any other way, let's do it. This is the time to call an audible. This is the time to alter or adjust the plan. Now is the time to brainstorm another idea. Now would be the time to let up on the gas and change direction if there was any other way to do it which really tells us a lot about the reality of the exclusive nature of the cross, that there is no other way to be reconciled to God. There is no other way to have peace with God than through the suffering and through the death and through the death as a condemned man of Jesus Christ and his subsequent uh, resurrection. If there was another way, certainly the Father and the Son could have come up with it. But there is no other way. And Jesus here is asking, if. If you are willing, take this cup from me. If there's another way, let's do it. You might recall that the last time we saw Satan in Luke's gospel, when he was tempting Jesus to take a shortcut, when he was tempting Jesus to try to have the kingdom in some other way than through the way of the cross. And here now Jesus is troubled in his soul. Jesus is in anguish. He's wrestling an eternity of fellowship with the Father, and now 30-plus years as the incarnate Son, never knowing a moment of disharmony or a lack of joy or peace with him. And now he's just hours away, and he knows what's coming. He's troubled. Beloved, it is fair for us to ask the Lord to take situations from us and deliver us from situations as well. The Apostle Paul asked three times for something uh, to be removed from him. We trust the Lord that in his wisdom and his timing, he may answer that prayer the way we want, or he may not. But it is fair for us to go and do this. We even hear Jesus doing it. Certainly, Jesus does not want to die. But many brave men and women have faced death with poise and with plumb and with bravery. It is this particular kind of death. It is hell. It is abandonment. It is this God-forsakenness which has Jesus so troubled. Certainly death itself because it's an enemy and he is the eternal Lord. He is the life-giving Lord. But it's not just death. It is this death. It is this kind of death. It is this condemnation, this aloneness, this God-forsakenness. And so there's no other way. There's no other person. There's no other Savior other than Jesus. And that leads us to Jesus' resolve. So Jesus prays this prayer. If there's any other way, if there's any way to take this cup from me, Father, then do it. But he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he says that with a wholehearted devotion. He says that not begrudging. He doesn't say that eye rolling. He says that with a wholehearted love for his father. He says that with a wholehearted love and affection for us, a joy for us. It was for the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross. The Heidelberg Catechism, when asking, what does your will be done on earth as it is in heaven mean in the Lord's Prayer, says this. It says, help us and all people to renounce our own wills and without any backtalk to obey your will for it alone is good. And help everyone carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. It's countercultural to renounce our wills, isn't it? Everything in us as creatures in Adam is to grab the gusto, to do our own thing, to pursue our own will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognizes, right, that Jesus bids a man to come and die. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Be willing to lose your life that you might find it. We're not our own. This is countercultural. I love what the catechism says. It says, do it without any backtalk. <laughs> How often do we do the will of the Lord without backtalk? Jesus did that his whole life. All of it without any back talk. You In know, 1 Corinthians 13, when it describes love, it's really describing Jesus, isn't it? A portrait of love is the face of our Savior. Love isn't irritable, it isn't rude, it doesn't insist on its own way. And here's love in the flesh. Not my will, but thine be done. this is really the first person in the whole drama of scripture who has always chosen loved and obeyed the father his word and his will isn't it my way and not god's way started in the garden actually it started before that satan he wanted to do his own thing not What the Creator wanted. Adam and Eve wanted to do what they wanted and not what the Creator wanted. Cain, Babel, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, unbelieving Israel, on and on it goes. Jesus really here is more than an example. He is the source. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He is the first fruits, the founder and finisher of our faith. He is the second Adam. Where Adam reached out and took what didn't belong to him to make it his own, Jesus lays down the things that are rightly his to make us his own. Not my will, but thine be done. He's the second Adam. Adam in the first garden made a choice to do his own thing and he ruined everybody who he represented. And Jesus here in a garden makes a choice not to do his own and to do the will of his Father, and with him comes our salvation. With him comes our righteousness. With him comes our imputed righteousness and obedience, as if we had done that ourselves. It's radical to even think about. Jesus willingly, without backtalk, with joy and with intentionality, with love and with mercy and with peace, went to the cross. He was bearing the penalty for all of our disobedience. For all of our grumbling, for all of our complaining, for all of our back talk, for all of our running the other way, for all of our refusal to do those things which we know the Lord would have us to do. And he brings up out of the grave a new humanity, one with a new heart, with a new will, with a new and new affections that does begin to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and does begin to walk in those ways which are pleasing and honoring to him. Herein in this prayer lies our sacrifice for sin, the penalty for sin, Jesus going to the cross to bear the penalty for all of our disobedience. But herein also lies our righteousness and that Jesus obeying even to the point of death that is remarkable to think about that that righteousness is credited to your account as if you had done it yourselves. And so now we have life, we have harmony, we have peace, we have reconciliation and reunion and communion and relationship with the eternal Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit now and forever. forever. So here when Jesus started his prayer, Father, he gives us as disciples the prayer, Our Father. We can say Our Father knowing that we will never be abandoned. We will never be forsaken. We will never endure the punishment and the chastisement that jesus brought he is our father we have been regenerated we have been born again we have been adopted legally we have been beloved from before the foundation of the world and we are joint heirs with jesus it's a remarkable reality that this relationship of ours is not by nature but by grace That's what Dr. Ball addressed last week in his chapel on Thursday when he did one of the great reversals of the Bible. By grace, I'm sorry, by nature, you are a child of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, you are under condemnation. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We've been raised again to a new life in Christ and we are his now and forever. And so we can call him our father. Knowing that he is faithful, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he is with us, that he is for us, that there's nothing in all of creation that will ever be able to separate us from his love because Jesus endured the separation for us. Jesus endured the abandonment for us. Jesus endured the wrath for us. Certainly we have trials and tribulations. Jesus provides for that. Pray that you would not enter into temptation. And he provides us with the resources that he needs to come and do those things which he has called us and is equipping us to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your electing grace that was set on us before the foundation of the world. And we thank you that you and the Son and the Holy Spirit orchestrated our salvation and then implemented it and are even now bestowing it and preserving it. We thank you that our Lord and Savior Jesus willingly came and that he laid down his life and that he endured hell for us, that he endured the abandonment, the curse, the condemnation, the judgment, the wrath. And in place of those things, we have been given hope. We have been given peace. We have been given life. We have been given adoption. We have been made joint heirs. May we live in love in light of that reality. I pray that you would be with these students Men and women, as they go about that to what you've called them this week as students here, I pray that you would help them to love and delight in your word and love and delight in your will as you conform them more and more to our glorified and risen Savior Jesus. Amen. Copyright 2020, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.